Morning, guys. It's good to be with you. Uh, if you haven't already, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians. Really excited. We're going to start a new study this morning through the book of Colossians. We just had a trek through the gospel according to John, and now through uh, the, the spring, essentially to summer, we're going to be in Colossians. And uh, Easter Sunday, we're going to be looking at made alive in Christ. Uh, it's really excited for our study through Colossians. I haven't, I haven't really done an in-depth study of Colossians before, so I look forward to learning with you, learning alongside you together as we learn what God would have for us this morning in Colossians. Uh, if you're able, I wanted to let you know that uh, we talked about this a, a couple weeks ago, that there is a, going to be an effort to gather people in the city of Des Moines together for prayer, that we were going to pray for our uh, governmental leaders, we were going to pray for our community, we were going to pray for our city. That has been scheduled uh, for March 29th at 7 a.m. So you want to join us, uh, Pastor Kyle Moffitt at Normandy Christian Church has graciously offered to host. Uh, some other pastors will be there. I think a couple of our council members are going to, Lord willing, plan to be there. I know it's, you know, there's not really a, an opportune time with uh, <laughs> Not everyone has a work schedule that's flexible that you could make it at 7 a.m., but if, you're, if you'd like, we'd love to have you join us if you're free. Secondly, there's going to be a women's uh, event coming up that's called Love Covers. It's going to be April 23rd, right here. We love that we have a, a building that we can use uh, here at, at Gathering Place. It's going to be right here from 9 to 11.30 a.m. I've, I've been told there's going to be something here called Brunch Boards which sound delicious. So I would come for that. <laughs> but there's also going to be, uh, there's also going to be teaching uh, on how does, how does the love of Christ, how does that affect the way that we love each other? How does that affect the way that we love those that we don't know, the stranger? What does hospitality look like? So I uh, would love for you to join the women of the Mountain Church here. Any questions that I miss? Did I do that right, Stephanie? Okay, thank you. If you need childcare, please email kids at themountainchurch.org. So, let's get into Colossians, shall we? Colossians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Colossae, yeah, not Colossia, <laughs> not Colossian. <laughs> Colossae, isn't that cool? It was written most likely about 30 years after the resurrection of, of Christ, and it was written uh, most likely as Paul was in prison. So Paul is in prison at this time. He, hear, he hears there's some teaching in, in Colossae, and he writes this letter to the saints, the brothers and sisters he writes there in Christ at Colossae. And he's writing this letter to correct some false teaching. He's writing this letter to encourage them to build their confidence in Christ. Uh, New Testament scholars believe that this church at Colossae was started by a guy named Epaphras. And Epaphras was, he could have been, uh, he could have been around Ephesus the time that Paul was there. So Paul came to this, this other city, Ephesus, was preaching the gospel. He had about this three-year ministry in Ephesus. And there, was, there, there probably was this guy named Epaphras who came to Ephesus, heard the gospel preached, responded in faith, trusted in Christ, and then returned to Colossae to start a church. And, and Paul and Epaphras had a relationship. And, and Paul hears that there was, some, there was some teaching that was influencing and affecting uh, his, his friends at the Colossian church. And Paul wrote this to, to correct, to encourage, to comfort. He writes of this, this church that had been planted, the church that had been 
started. And like any church, there's mistakes that are made, right? Like any church, there's temptation to believe things that aren't true. Like any church, there can be false teaching uh, that's influencing those in the church that can damage those in the church. And this is what has happened, probably. Epaphras shares with Paul what's going on in the church, and Paul writes this letter to respond to this particular situation in Colossae. And we have the privilege, we have the honor, we have the joy of studying this letter written, you know, think about it, AD 60, AD 70, and we get to study it today. And we get to learn about Christ, and we get to learn more of the gospel, and we get to be encouraged and comforted through this letter to the Colossians. That's amazing. God is so good to us to preserve this writing for us that we get to learn and study. And uh, there's, not, there's not necessarily like a footnote or a note from Paul on, here's the exact situation in Colossae that's happening. Here's exact the false teaching, and I'm going to respond. I'm going to write my letter to counteract these things. So what we have to do is, and what scholars have to do as they study Colossians is kind of infer what and, and look through extra biblical sources. What was the context of Colossae? What was the, the religions, the worship practices? What was the teaching at the time that was really going on? What was the context in which this letter was written? And, and many believe that, that what was happening was there was maybe this, this this type of shaman figure, this was this type of religious leader who was influenced both by kind of Jewish uh, Jewish thought and the thoughts at the time in the Greco-Warman world, or, or more you could call pagan thought. And it involved, uh, this, this teaching or this teaching involved that the Colossians needed to observe certain rites. They needed to observe certain rituals. They needed to practice certain things to protect them from evil spirits and to provide uh, wisdom and understanding into kind of influence or success or wealth, they, they needed, these Colossians needed a kind of higher spiritual guide, if you will. That's what they were being influenced. You, you need superior uh, spirituality, this awareness. Uh, it involves maybe praying to angels or worshiping angels. It involves observing certain rites. And, and when you do this, then you will be you know, understanding and you'll have the knowledge of, of what it means. And Paul's saying... <laughs> <laughs> no, right? Nah, fam. He's saying, this is not how it works. Christ is preeminent. Christ is the one that you know. Christ is the one that you are to worship. Christ is the one who has knowledge and understanding and a knowledge of his will and his teaching and what he has done. So that's, that's the kind of the crux. Colossians is, is probably one of the most Christ-centered letters of, of the New Testament. That's what we're calling this study, centrality of Christ, right? We want to look at Christ in the study. So I hope you guys are excited to, to worship Christ through this study. Amen? Man, I've, I've been jacked at already what, what God has taught me. And this is what Paul's saying. Christ is preeminent. There's nothing that's greater than Christ. Christ is the one who's Lord. He's the king over the visible and invisible. There's not some sort of secret knowledge that this, you know, these people, you can learn of the deeper understandings and protections of evil spirits. No, he says, you have Christ, you're good. And this is the context in which this letter is written. He's, he's talking about, don't give heed to this teaching. Jesus is more powerful. He has greater authority. Focus on Christ, grow in him. And, and growing in him, understanding Christ looks like pursuing him. It looks like having a distinct Christian household. It looks like having the gospel effect the way that you live and, and do family life. It's very practical and countercultural. 
So this is kind of the, a brief summary of the context in which Paul is writing this letter to uh, Colossae. You guys still with me? I'd love to, if you have any more further questions on, on the back study, I could probably talk for like an hour and a half just on, I mean, I've done it before, unfortunately. I've preached an hour and 20 message on, on two verses. Um, I still feel bad about that one sometimes. <laughs> but if you'd like more, I'd, I'd love to have a conversation with you. But this is how he starts the letter, right? He starts kind of in a similar fashion to many other letters and similar greetings of, of the Greco-Roman time. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers, when he says brothers there, he's, he's also referring to the sisters, so that's why some translations say brothers and sisters, in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Right, so similar form of a letter, right? Who it's from, who it's to, and a greeting. And we still kind of do this today, don't we? We, we don't, I can't remember the last time I wrote a letter. <laughs> we have electronic letters called email and Gmail and Hotmail and all the other mails. And we don't necessarily write this to and, and from because it appears in our inbox, right? You get an email from me, it says, from Daniel. And maybe there's a subject there. And maybe there's a greeting that says, dear, or more professionally, to whom it may concern. <laughs> or more informally, hey. <laughs> but this is what Paul's doing. But you see in, in this greeting, this, is, this would be a kind of common form of, of letters in the time. You see that Paul has infused gospel, doctrine, grace, theology within this letter. Look at, look at how he writes. He's Paul, and this is not just you know, your buddy who's sending you a text. This is Paul the apostle. This means what he's writing has authority. And it's not because... He has authority, but because Christ has granted him authority, right? By the will of God, of Christ Jesus. Like this authority has been given from Paul, or to Paul from Christ. And Timothy, Timothy is with him. Timothy might've been the one who actually penned out this letter. And then he's saying, to the saints, to the faithful brothers in Christ. And then he says this, grace to you and peace from God our Father. I love the way Paul begins his letters this way, and he often ends his letters this way. It's, in fact, why I oftentimes end my emails with grace and peace. I want to capture this idea. This, this is how Paul is, is, is welcoming grace and peace from God our Father. It's, it's demonstrating that Paul really cares about these people. And what he's trying to communicate in this letter is a letter of grace and peace. And what Paul is telling the Colossians in this way is saying that, that you need the grace and peace of God to to, to understand this, that God would grant grace and peace to the readers so that they would understand what he's writing, so that they would find comfort in what he's writing, so that they'd find clarity against the false teachers and, and teachings. In other words, what Paul is about to write to them is grace and peace. Does that make sense? It's not just some sort of trite saying, hey, grace and peace, peace, you know, hey. No, it's, it's peace from God our Father. And then he begins by expressing thanks and communicating his prayers for the Colossians. That's cool, isn't it? Right away, he's, he's communicating prayer. Verse three, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 
So when he prays for the Colossians, he's always thanking God. Like there's not a prayer that he has for the Colossians that he's not thanking God. I wish I could grow like that, right? <laughs> so it's, God, just please give me this. No, thank you, God, right? Let's have more thanks in our prayers. What Paul's praying. We always thank God the Father when we pray for you since these two things. We heard you have an amazing preacher. His podcast is trending. Your music, wow, so good. The way the Nord came in there with the synth sound, <laughs> wow. You guys are serving coffee now? Whoa, that's awesome. What does Paul, what does Paul pray there? What's, what are important to, what's important to Paul? What is he thanking God for? Faith, right. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your superior Bible studies. Your great graphics on the screens. Your love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit." That's fascinating to me that Paul is, is thanking God. He's, when, he, when he remembers, when he prays for the Colossians, he always thanks God because he's heard of these things. He's heard of their faith. He's heard of their love. This, this, this demonstrates that the love that the Colossians had for each other was a public love. And I don't think when Paul says this, I've heard of your love that you have for all the saints, that he's thinking about Colossian churches are, are getting together in circles and they're talking about how much they love each other. Well, communicating love is important. I don't think that's just what they were doing. They just weren't telling each other how much they loved each other. It was, it was made public. It was known. It was displayed. It wasn't just a feeling. It was described as an action. It was made public. Right? Our, our culture doesn't quite, we kind of miss this. We, so, we focus a lot on feelings, I think, in our in our culture. Think about some of the love songs you might know or hear. Right? Rihanna th sings about finding love. It's like something that's out there that she's discovered. You know that song, We Found Love in a Hopeless Place? Just me? Okay. Uh, Stevie Wonder sings about, I believe when I fall in love this time, it's going to be forever. It's like this wishful thinking. Like, I fall in love, but I, I believe this time it's going to be forever. Well, why is that? What about the last time? <laughs> Anyways, I don't want to dissect Stevie Wonder's song there. I, I actually like it, right? <laughs> Whitney Houston sings about, you know, I will always love you, right? We know this song. We belt it out. It's beautiful. But she sings about always loving the person that she can't be with. <laughs> That's super lame. <laughs> Right? If I could stay, if I, but I would only be in your way, so I'll go. But I know I'll think about you every step of the way. And then, right, then we know the, the, the chorus. The, I won't do it. I want to. I really want to. Yeah. Beyonce talks about love making her go crazy. 
but crazy in love. Right? But in the Christian faith, love is not described simply as a feeling. It's not just something that's like mysterious, out there, it's elusive. You never know where it's gonna, it's gonna hit you. Right? The, the heart wants what it wants. I just, I just have to follow this feeling. It comes and goes, it waxes and wanes. No, in the Christian faith, love is demonstrated. It's received, it's responded to, and it affects your actions, your posture, your tone of voice, your physical acts. It's, it's displayed, right? That's what Paul's saying. I heard about this. Jesus talks about loving others in, in regards to loving others means you're doing good to them. For one pastor say, you know, love is defined as doing spiritual, seeking to do spiritual good to another. Jesus describes that there's no greater love than laying down your life for your friend. In other words, love is demonstrated as a self-sacrificial action. It's de- demonstrated in relationship. The, the Apostle Paul describes love in, in regards to relationship. Where he says it's love is consuming. It makes you write poetry. Love calls you to sing. It, it brings these sensations to your body. No, right? What does Paul write about love? The love chapter, Colossians 13, says love is patient. Love is kind. In other words, love affects the way that you relate. Love does not keep a record of wrong. <laughs> love does not boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It's not selfish. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. And I think Paul's saying here that if, if we say we love our church... What do we mean by that, right? I think many of us, when we say we love our church, what we really mean is we love, we love the way that we do our gathering. We love the way, we love the flow of our liturgy. It's beautiful. We sing two songs. We dismiss kids. We preach. We sing three songs. It's, I love my church. What is Paul, what is Paul meaning when he says the love that you have? He's talking about for the people, love for the saints. So when you say you love your church, do you mean you love your preferences or you love the people that's gathered here? And I pray that God might show us more. What does it look like to love? And I think Paul gives us some, a pretty profound truth. I couldn't get past this truth this week as I was studying. Right? He says, I've heard of your, lo- your faith in Christ. I've heard of your love. And he says this, because of what? What is the basis for your faith and your love? Verse five, because of the hope. What? (laughs) That doesn't make sense to me. When I first read that, I don't know. Is is that really what it means? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Right, then he says, of this, you have heard before in the word of, of the truth, the gospel. So this hope is coming from this gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it's it's bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understand the grace of truth. So this gospel, this, this message as a message of hope and it's come to the Colossians, it's bearing fruit in their lives. It's increasing just as it's doing around the world. And Paul is saying that their faith and love is rooted in, it's based in hope. The hope laid up for them in heaven, the, the hope they heard about in the word of the truth. In other words, the gospel is the basis, the motivation for, for faith and love. And the love for the saints comes from their confident hope of what God has reserved for them in heaven. It's, in other words, it's kind of faith and love is, is springing up out of this hope. The New Testament scholar 
And in his, his uh, commentary on Colossians, N.T. Wright says it like this, the solid facts about the, the future hope of Christians is a powerful motivation for constant faith and costly love in the present. In other words, what the Colossians have put their hope in has affected the way they live in the present in the way they relate to God and in the way they relate to others. I had a hard time understanding that this week. And I, was, I had a hard time, does that, is that really, <laughs> Paul? Is that how it works? Living out of the hope in Christ is a, is a motivational power. It's love empowering. I was like, well, what does he mean by hope? Is it this kind of like wishful thinking? Like, man, I, I hope that we can have nachos for lunch today. I love nachos. That's kind of this wishful thinking. I hope my March Madness bracket is not totally destroyed after the games today. I've got a pretty good one. I'm at the top of my league right now. I hope it's not destroyed. Do I have any control over that? No. It's not, Christian hope is not an anticipation or an expectation like there's any doubt about it. The hope of heaven, it's, it hasn't yet been fully experienced, but it is going to happen. It's, that's, as T. Wright says, it's solid facts because the hope is rooted in what Christ has already done. It's been accomplished. It's rooted in the promises of God, the faithfulness of God, the, the grace of God, therefore. So the, the believer's hope, our, our hope then is the basis for the faith that we have in God and this promises for this life. I was reading more this week. What, is, what does that really, how does that play out? John Calvin describes it like this. He describes that hope will never be inactive in us. It's, it, so it, it, as it, it's going to produce love. That's what he says. He uses beautiful language, right? For it is of necessity that the man who is fully persuaded that a treasure of life is laid up for him in heaven will aspire thither, right? Who uses thither? It's beautiful. Use that this week, thither. Looking down upon the world, meditation, however, upon the heavenly life, right? So this thinking about this hope, this trusting in this hope, this resting in this hope, stirs up our affections both to the worship of God and to exercises of love. In other words, the Christian hope shapes, it affects, empowers Love And Paul says that this hope that you heard before, this hope that's in the word of truth, the gospel, this powerful message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has done something to you. How? And I was, it just got me thinking of what, in my kind of relationships of my life and the way I love others, what, how does this hope play into that? I, I wanted to, to kind of dig, if you will. What's, what's going on? I was thinking about, and I came across this song, right? This, I mentioned this earlier, this song from Beyonce, Crazy in Love. And she has this phrase, got me hoping you'll save me right now. Looking so crazy, your love's got me looking, got me looking so crazy in love. And this, there was just this aspect of hope. He just got, says, got me hoping you'll save me right now. So she's singing about hope. She's singing that this lover, she's hoping this lover will save her 
will deliver her, her, the touch, the kiss, the contact. It'll bring some sort of salvation to her. And then I was thinking about when I met Stephanie. I, you know, I, I, I grew up homeschooled. Girls were weird. I was socially awkward. <laughs> A lot of things were working against me. And I remember in high school, the only two girls in my life were my mom and my sister. And I prayed to God, God, help me just meet a girl that I can learn more what they're like. <laughs> and the next summer, I met Stephanie. And we, met at a, we were met at a, a summer camp, serving together. I remember one of the first conversations, uh, we were being very responsible counselors because we left our kids on the beach and just got in a canoe together. <laughs> I think Peter maybe left you on the... Anyways. So I was talking with Stephanie, and, and she just shared her whole life with me. And I'm, you know, quiet and awkward, and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, either this is what girls do, they just are very honest, like scary honest, or this one is different. <laughs> and when I, when I became more captivated by Stephanie, it, it's like there was these feelings that sprung up in me that I'd, I'd never felt before. Like, I couldn't stop thinking about her. <laughs> I wrote poetry about Stephanie. It's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> Love poems about Stephanie. I was waiting for the moment when the online now icon would flash on her MySpace page and we could chat. I was consumed by by her. I would dream about a future with her. And there, there certainly was an innocence to that, to the love. And, you know, we, we have this phrase, falling in love. And I think more so for me, it was, when I hear that phrase, falling in love, I more so think what you really mean is like falling in a kind of lust. <laughs> because I think what was really going on in my heart at the time was I had this longing for companionship. I had this longing for intimacy. I had this longing for belonging. And Stephanie was the one who filled that. Of course, there was a time of disorientation because Stephanie, just like, just like I am, just like we are, we fail. We, we make mistakes. We disappoint. And, and those, oftentimes you, you could talk with couples or I've done pastoral counseling where Couples describe this, these feelings that we had of like being in love, like they're gone now. <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> it's like the relationship was based on these, these feelings. Or kids, they're, they, they had this hope in, parents had this hope in kids, and kids will bring this fulfillment and, and meaning and life, and then they have the kids and they're all the, you know, first-time parents are they're just posting so many pictures. And here, look at my kids, and look at my kids, and my life is consumed about my kids. And I talk with you, and I won't talk about anything else about my kids. And single people are just driven crazy by young parents because they all didn't talk about their kids, right? And older parents are like, oh, you just wait. <laughs> you just wait. And then the kids start to become their own, and they start to rebel, and they're suddenly not these little cute things that you can squish and... And then you're faced with this idea of, do I love my kids when they inconvenience me? What, what, what was my hope in? 
I'm convinced more and more that oftentimes when, when couples fall in love, what's really going on is this kind of, this kind of lust. And, and by God's grace, over time, what God does in a relationship is teaches them really what does love look like. What does it really look like to love? And looking back at my relationship, I was, I was hoping for a kind of companionship and acceptance and intimacy that when I say I was in love with Stephanie in 2008, I was smitten. I love Stephanie more now than I ever thought possible. Four, whoa, 14 years ago? Yeah. And it got me thinking about this, of what, what you hope for will affect what you love. It does have this, this dynamic. If you come into a church hoping for wonderful worship experiences every single week, you come into a church and you're hoping for deep, lasting friendship and intimacy. You come into a church lo- longing for the best sermons where the pastor's going to tell me everything I need to know that week. It's going to speak right to my heart. I'm going to be captivated every time and I'm going to leave just jacked to conquer the week. You will be disappointed. If two people become friends because of what they can get out of the relationship, there will continually be disappointment and frustration and disconnection. But if two people come into a relationship where their hope is Christ, they will have a kind of closeness that two people who hoped for that same thing would not have on their own. Does that make sense? I'm trying to, I don't know if my thoughts are as refined. I'm, I'm processing this and I've been processing them this week. But I think what Paul is saying is when you hope in Christ, you are truly freed to love. You're freed to love freely. Your hope isn't in that person. Your hope isn't in what that person can give to me, can do for me, what I can get out of this relationship. Your hope is in Christ. Your hope is in something that Christ has accomplished that is totally secure. It can never be taken away. It can never be robbed. It can never be taken from you. No one can take that from you. So you're freed to love. I don't need anything from you. I can love you for who you are. I can serve you for who you are. I can give myself to you because of what Christ has done for me. Paul is saying, I've, I've heard of your public love, and this love springs forth. The, the root of this love, the fruit of this love, excuse me, is the root of hope. And this hope is the fruit of the gospel. And here's what Paul prays. So he's heard of these things. He prays, number one, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. And number two, he prays that they would be strengthened with all power. And for the Colossians, knowledge and wisdom at this time, this was something that the false teachers were offering to them. You know, you follow us, you follow our little rights, you follow our particular way, you follow our practices, you can have power. And, and this was a, this was a, a value of, of the time. Oftentimes, people would come to their gods and they would, they would ask for, they would hope for this divine power through some sort of connection. And this power would, would give them wealth or influence or success or prominence. And what Paul is praying for is this power doesn't produce a kind of 
things are going to work out really well. You're going to get wealthy and successful and powerful. He's, he's praying that, that this power would lead to endurance and patience and thanksgiving. And look, what he, look what he says. He's praying, he's praying for these two things, and these teeth, do two things, excuse me, can't say my T's. <laughs> these two things, golly, these two things, these two things, out of the overflow of these comes, verse 10, so he's praying for the knowledge of, of his will, so that, so as to, verse 10, Paul writes, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He's not praying that you'd be filled with all knowledge that you might become a self-righteous know-it-all. <laughs> you grow in knowledge so that you can look down on others by how much you know. It feels great. You can be superior. No, he's saying you, you grow in this knowledge so that you walk in a manner worthy of, of the Lord. Walk in the Jewish thought. It was an image, a metaphor for behaving, for acting. So walk in a manner that's pleasing to, to the Lord. Looks like acting and, and behaving in a way that, that bears good fruits. It looks like a life of increased knowledge of God. And, and there's this dynamic that Paul is describing in this moment of, I'm going to pray that you are filled with the knowledge of God so that you would grow in the knowledge of God. So being filled with knowledge of God looks like a continual growing in the knowledge of God. So you never stop learning about the knowledge of God, essentially what he's saying. You never stop growing because when you're filled with the knowledge of God, you grow in the knowledge of God. You grow in good works, a life pleasing of the Lord. Those who know the will of God, in other words, seek to increase in the knowledge of God. Those who think that they have arrived, those who think they no longer need to increase in their knowledge of God are essentially saying they don't know the will of God. So we've talked about this before. You don't, you don't ever master God. You grow as a Christian by being mastered by God. Those who know the will of God keep on seeking to know God, right? So it's filled with the knowledge of the will of God. You're strengthened with power for what, right? So you're filled with the knowledge of God for what? Life-pleasing of the Lord, bearing good works, and growing in knowledge. And then he says, pray that you be strengthened with all power for what? Endurance, says patience with joy, and giving thanks. And in that culture, in that context, he so valued spiritual power. And they thought, they thought of it for the purpose of wealth or for influence or protection from evil spirits. Paul is praying for spiritual power so that they would endure, not for selfish ambitions, not for personal gain, but for faithfulness and for joy and for patience and for thanks giving. Paul is saying that the Colossians need to remember the power. They need to experience the power. They need God to grant power so that they can endure, that they can resist temptation, that they can remain faithful, that they can know the joy of the Lord. In other words, I think what Paul's praying for here is that the Colossians would understand, know, and seek wisdom for what Christ has already done. This is the dynamic of, uh, of Christian change, of heart transformation. It's what Paul is doing in this prayer even. Like, know what's already been accomplished. 
grow in who you already are. We don't quite grasp this kind of economic in our culture and society because you, you prove who you are or you, you, uh, you, you have to grow and work for identity and for status and for worth, right? It's what our culture teaches us. It's up to you, your voice and, and your actions and you build your identity on what you've accomplished. And what Paul is saying is, no, based on what Christ has accomplished, you live out of that. You are. What Christ has done, that affects the way that you live. This is what, this is what Paul does in this letter and in, in many of his letters. He starts with, look at what Christ has done. Therefore, live out of this. It's the, the beauty of the gospel in the Christian faith. It's the, it's the beauty that I try to communicate each week of look at what Christ has done and live out of that. Right? If I could just simplify every single sermon, it would be, look how great the gospel is, then live out of that. That'd be the, the main point of every single one of my sermons would essentially be that. <laughs> and let us be encouraged and let us be strengthened and let us find comfort. Let us be encouraged in what God has already done. Paul teaches, he reminds, he encourages them to remember who they are, be who you are, live out of what Christ has accomplished because Paul knows that it's by grace. So he prays this, it's by grace. It's the work of God to grant understanding and knowledge of his will and strengthen with power so that that might live a life worthy of the calling. It's by grace that their life would reflect, that the gospel would be so saturated, that they'd be so motivated by this hope that their life, the way that they live, the applications and implications would align with a life worthy of, of the Lord, pleasing to the Lord. This is the work of grace. And what is their hope in? He, he concludes it there in the last two verses. What Jesus has already accomplished, what has he done? You're giving thanks to the Father who has what? Look at these verbs that, that Paul uses. Qualified delivered, transferred. That is awesome. Look what Christ has done. He has qualified you. In other words, these false teachers, Colossians, that are promising these rights, these certain rituals, these beliefs, these, these spiritual things you have to do to kind of gain superior spirituality. Christ has already qualified you for this inheritance. You don't need it. Stop. <laughs> that would be my, my rough translation. Quit it. He, the Father, He has qualified. Your actions don't qualify. Your, these rituals, these secret information are, are facts. These practices, they don't qualify you in an inheritance in light. He has qualified you. How? Right? Look at that. Verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of life. That describes it's done. He's delivered and transferred. And what do we have in this transferred to us, the kingdom of his beloved son? What do we have in this Jesus? We have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. In other words, Paul is trying to root their hope, their confidence in what Christ has done. Look at this. He has qualified. He has transferred. He has, excuse me, delivered and transferred. This is what Christ has done for the Colossians. And Paul prays, I pray that God would grant you understanding about this. 
you have been qualified. No one can take that away. You have this hope in Christ. No one can take that away. You have already been delivered and transferred. And since you are already in the kingdom, live out the kingdom values. Because you have been adopted into this family, live out of the family values. As God provides this glorious might that provides knowledge and wisdom and power to understand what God has already done. And as Paul prays that God would grant this kind of knowledge and this kind of spiritual strength, he's praying that it would do things in the life of, of the believers, that they would endure, that they would be patient, that they would be joyful. In other words, Paul is telling the Colossians, you don't graduate from the gospel. You don't move past it. You move deeper into it. The gospel, Paul writes, that is what has come to their life. The gospel is what's increasing and what's bearing fruit. I remember a pastor friend of mine who described the fact that, you know, church planters and people who start churches, they describe themselves as, we planted a church, like we started a church. It's like, no, you didn't. What church planting is, what starting a church is, is you're planting the gospel. And the gospel is what bears fruit and increases. The gospel is what forms and shapes churches. And I pray, as, as Paul prays in Colossians 1, that God, by his grace, right, we can't, I, <laughs> we can strive and seek and learn and study, but look what he's, he, he, he prays there. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And our posture as a church, I pray, as we move into this study of Colossians, is this. God, help us to, help us to have a kind of understanding from you by your grace that we would be filled with all spiritual wisdom, that we would live a life that is worthy of the Lord, that we would endure, that we would be patient, that we would be joyful as we give thanks to all that he's done. And we don't want to move past giving thanks for what he has done. He has delivered us. He has transferred us into this glorious kingdom. He has rescued us. He has qualified us. Therefore, he deserves the glory and the praise and the honor. Amen? He is the one that we rejoice in, and he's the one that we continue to look to. God, grant us, I pray. Let's pray now. God, would you be with us? Would you grant us a wisdom and a knowledge? By your glorious might, Father, would we be strengthened with all power, for all endurance and patience with joy? Help us to give thanks to you, Father, for what you have done. You have qualified, you have delivered, you have transferred. In Jesus, you have granted us redemption and forgiveness of sins. Father, help us as your spirit moves and works in our church to set our hope in what is secure and lasting and never shaken or broken or we don't know what's going to happen next. Father, would you fill us? Would our hope be in Christ that it might affect the way that we love each other? 
Would we be filled with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understandings that we might live a life in which we seek to please you, not ourselves, not others, but you, Jesus. Lord, thank you for, for the great work that you've done in our, our lives that, that we are gathered here in this room. All across this room, Father, there are different ages and life experiences and sufferings and trials. But you have gathered us here this morning to give thanks to you, to remember what you have done for us, to be reminded of your great love and and the great grace that you have bestowed upon us. Lord, help us to understand this. Forgive me for the ways in which I have sought to lead and preach in such a way that is not gracious, that is not looking to you as the, the founder and the finisher of our faith. Forgive us in which ways that we can be harsh and bitter with each other. Forgive us for the ways in which the, the, the passions, the desires that are at war within us have led us to quarrel and to fight with each other. Forgive us for in kids or in work or in hobbies or in status or in accomplishments. Lord, thank you that you're so gracious to us that we might come to the end of ourselves and realize there is no hope but the hope in Christ. Lord, thank you for the ways that in which you, you even use suffering to teach us more of just your great love and grace towards us. Lord, I'm excited what you will teach us as we study Colossians. And we look to you, Father. You are the one which, which, who has to grant us this understanding, this power. We depend upon you. We, we submit our agendas and our ideas and our perspectives to you and to your leadership, Father. And we ask that you might be glorified in this church, that you might be glorified in our life. We love you so much. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.